I've titled the message, The Curse of Sin. The Curse of Sin. Now, if you heard what I said a few moments ago about Christmas-themed messages, and you're not really familiar with Christianity, or you're kind of on your first, uh, first, first year in the faith, and you're just like, wait a second, I thought this was supposed to be about the birth of Christ. I thought this was supposed to be about Christmas. Why are we in Genesis chapter 3? Why are we talking about the curse of sin if this is supposed to be a message about the birth of Christ? Well, I'm glad that you're wondering that if you are, and if you're not wondering that, I'm glad that you already know and that you're just reminded of things that you're very familiar with already. But for those of you who are not already familiar with the the meta-narrative of Scripture, the overall arc, the big story of the Bible, it is important to understand the beginning if you're going to understand an event as important as the birth of Christ, or what we would just call Christmas, or the Christmas season. In order to understand that, you have to understand why things are the way they are in the first place. And so we begin at the beginning. We start with point number one. I have a couple of slides. So point number one, we have man's rebellion and fall into sin. Man's rebellion and fall into sin. This is recorded in verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This is the record of this Event, man's rebellion and fall into sin. But before this rebellion and fall into sin, before everything got messed up, God made it. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read the historical account of God's creation of the world. I put in my notes, read Genesis 1 and 2. So I think we should do that. Please turn to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be A firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was Good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and herbs, herbs, 
I am having trouble <laughs> with that word. The herb, let's start with verse 11 again. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass the, that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herbs that yield seeds according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. It just dawned on me that word might not be in the ESV. Do you, what's the word in the ESV? Plants? Vegetation? Plants? Okay, I'm going to say plants. I'm reading from the New King James, so those who are wondering what's happening. Plants. Verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them on the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So, the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every plant that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant on the field of the field was in the earth and before any plant of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. 
The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of their second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature and was its name, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. And for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed." So in these two chapters, which we have just read now, this morning we've read the first three chapters of the Bible, we read the historical account of God's creation of the world. Some may ask, do you actually believe this? Do you actually believe this happened? And I say, yes, I do. You may respond, but it contradicts science. Well, you can insert a comment here about trusting the science and the science saying things and... How I think many of us now have been filled with a greater dose of skepticism in recent years if we've seen how science is actually political science and political science is actually comedy and comedy is history. and uh, Just uh, the whole world is turned upside down. But what we know is that science changes. Impressions change. Perspectives change. The research changes from year to year. Just a number of years ago, you would go to Google and type in how old is the universe and hit enter and it would pop up a number. And now, you know, a number of years later, you type in how old is the universe and hit enter and a different number pops up. Are we really going to base our faith on a foundation so unstable? Whether or not we believe the Bible is true, whether or not we believe this record is as it says, or if we think, well, I know it says that, but that's not real. Genesis 1, 2, 3, the early chapters of Genesis, this is not some sort of figurative literary genre of of poetry. This is historical narrative. It's telling us what happened. And that's part of the reason, that's the driving reason why I just straight up read it. Instead of attempting to summarize it or explain it, no, we'll just read it. I believe this actually happened. I believe in a straightforward, literal reading of Genesis 1 through 3, as well as many other texts. But 
To deny the plain reading of the early chapters of Genesis may seem like a way to avoid getting in trouble with the scientists, but it actually creates massive problems if you attempt to solve the science problem by taking significant liberties with your reading of the text. It's actually creating massive theological problems. For example... There's tons of these, but I only have a couple of them here. Denial of the historical Adam destroys the New Testament's credibility and the Old Testament's credibility, but it destroys the New Testament's credibility as it makes many references to Adam as a real person. Just take Jesus, for example. He believed Adam was a real person. And so if you deny these chapters saying, well, I know it says that, but Adam wasn't really a single individual named Adam. It was just a man or mankind. And it was this long evolutionary process that was like not really human and then subhuman and then evolved into humanity. Um, destroying the historicity of Adam or, or denying the historicity of, of Adam, the, the genuine existence of Adam creates Massive problems, the first that I'm listing here is that it just destroys and takes away from the credibility of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. And the second thing is the denial of the historical Adam wreaks havoc on the Bible's covenantal theology of Adam's federal headship of the human race. Because there's the second Adam, Christ. The Bible places these two figures, Adam and Jesus, in parallel structure as the two heads of humanity. Adam as the first head of the human race and Christ as the second head of the new humanity, the new creation, the new human race. So when you hear people say, oh, there's only one race, the human race, well, it's actually, the the, the theological answer is no, there's two. There's the race of Adam and the race of Christ. But if you deny the reality that Adam was a real person who actually existed and this whole garden thing actually happened with the talking snake and all that stuff, if you say that didn't happen because you want to appease your skeptic friend who's a scientist who might be actually not no more of a scientist than Bill Nye the science guy who's actually an engineer. But if you're going to destroy the truthfulness of a whole bunch of your Bible in order to try to appease someone who doesn't believe it anyway, you are running very quickly into massive problems. And the Garden of Eden and the creation account is just one. Because you might not have noticed, but there's actually a lot of things in the Bible that contradict science. Like the resurrection. I find it odd that some theologians may be a theologian of the resurrection and they talk all about the resurrection, but then they deny the historical Adam. As though the resurrection is easier to reconcile with science than creation from nothing. If you ever hear the expression ex nihilo, that's what that is, out of nothing. When God is is existing before time and he speaks out into the emptiness and says, let it be, and it was, that's actually easier than the resurrection. In case you haven't cooked anything recently, it's it's easier to, to cook a dish than to fix a messed up dish. 
it's easier to start from nothing than to take a whole bunch of messed up stuff and then you have to clear it out or clean it up or fix it or scrape off the burnt part and then try to come up with something good afterwards, you're much better off just starting over from scratch. Resurrecting a dead body, resurrecting a body that has been brutalized by the Romans, that is far more difficult than creating something. So we see first, man's rebellion and fall into sin. Man's rebellion and fall into sin was real. It really happened. And its effects are felt to this present day. Now, there's something addressed in the text, well, mentioned in the text. I won't say it's addressed. It's just sort of this side thing that if you're paying attention, you're like, wait, how did that come about? Well, it's not really told to us in as much detail, but the thing we see under this is this temptation from the father of lies. Now, we logically conclude that the temptation from the father of lies, well, that means Satan already had his fall before Adam and Eve had their fall. And again, I believe this actually happened. The serpent appears to Adam and Eve in the garden and tempts them. He has already rebelled. We know, based on the rest of the Bible, that this serpent is an appearance of Satan, who is also, he's got several names, but one of which would be Lucifer, who rebelled. He was one of the angels in heaven who rebels against God and leads a rebellion and falls and God casts them out of heaven. And then here Satan comes to earth to attack God's creation. And he targets the pinnacle of God's creation, which is the image bearers of God, man and woman. So Satan appears, the serpent appears to Adam and Eve in the garden and and tempts them. Satan's rebellion against God had already taken place, but Satan's fall is not what brought the entire world into sin. It was Adam's sin, not Satan's sin. It was Adam's sin, the image bearer of God. Adam, the federal head of the human race. Adam alone was the representative of humanity, not Satan, not Lucifer, also not even Eve. It's not Eve's sin that plunges all of humanity into sin. It is Adam's sin. So, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Remember, Satan, some of his names. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. The name of the game in temptation is distortion of the word of God. It is twisting of the word of God. It is questioning the word of God. It is putting question marks where God puts periods. It is reframing the word of God into different ways that are a little more... um, Culturally acceptable. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, even in this, you see that there is is some slipping happening. Like Eve is already taking a tumble, and that is adding to the word of God. God said, Don't eat it. She says, Well, God said, Don't eat it or touch it. This is the fruit, no pun intended, the fruit of legalism. 
is adding to the word of God in order to provide this extra so-called or supposed barrier of protection, but those extra barriers of protection, those extra guardrails, those extra things that you put up and you say, well, we're, we're not only not going to eat the tree, we're not going to touch it, we're not going to be anywhere near it, that only lasts so, so much. The fence only is, is, it only lasts till you step over the fence. And so Eve has this extra rule that she put up, which was, you can't even touch it, which is not actually what God said. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So Satan, in his typical pattern, which he will continue throughout the rest of the Bible, he challenges the word of God. He denies the word of God and saying, well, what God said is so, isn't so. You're not going to die. And then he challenges the character of God. He lies about the character of God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, well, God doesn't want you to know these things. God is withholding something good from you to cultivate discontentment within her. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. These three things that she observed, these are the three things that the book of James calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same pattern For sin. She sees it's good for food. It looks good. It's beautiful. And it'll it'll make me smart. She also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When they ate that fruit, their eyes were opened and they knew. So we have man's rebellion and fall into sin, point one. Point number two, relationships destroyed by sin. Relationships destroyed by sin. Verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden east, uh, sorry, that's chapter two. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? which I commanded that you should not eat. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The first subpoint under this is that man's relationship with God is destroyed. This is the greatest of all tragedies. Man's relationship with God destroyed. 
Notice how Adam and Eve had formerly walked with God in daily communion and fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. They walked with God in the cool of the day. This is their habit. This is their pattern. And God comes to them. The Lord God comes to them to walk with them and to talk with them and to have fellowship and communion with them. As friends walk with friends, just enjoying one another's company with no agenda, just being together and sharing and their thoughts and their minds and their hearts, laughing together, pointing out beautiful sights. The Lord God comes to visit with Adam and Eve. But notice how after the fall, the sound of the footsteps that once instilled joy now inspires fear. So think with me about this. The distant sight of the one that you love. You see them off in the distance. And that sight causes your heart rate to increase. As you, you, you stumble over your words around them. Your stomach has butterflies. Seeing them causes a slight or a not so slight gasp taking your breath away. Now... After the fall, those excited butterflies have been replaced with a lump in the throat, knots in the stomach, existential dread, incredible shame, and a desire to flee. The, the, the sight of God, the presence of God was once such a source of great joy and desire to be with God. But now, after the fall, that excitement has been replaced with dread. The relationship as beloved children of God has turned to fear. The Bible even tells us as an enemy of God. This is, in fact, everyone's starting point after the fall. From Adam and Eve forward. Adam and Eve started out sinless. But from their fall, from their rebellion onward, every human being born as a descendant of Adam receives this as their starting point. This is their starting point before being reconciled to God in salvation. That reconciliation to God, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ as the sin bearer. Faith in Jesus Christ as the one who would take our sin, live sinlessly and die as our substitute and to rise victoriously for our redemption. Before that happens... Our starting point is like that of Adam and Eve running from God, fearing God, being afraid of him and saying, I don't think I want to be around here because God is here. Man's relationship with God is destroyed by sin. Secondly, you see Adam and Eve's relationship with one another shattered. Adam and Eve's relationship with one another 
shattered. See the accusations, see the rejection, see the betrayal bound up with these words in verses 11 and 12. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Let me just say, getting unexpectedly thrown under the bus is incredibly painful. (laughs) Even getting expectedly thrown under the bus is incredibly painful. You think that someone is loyal to you. You think that you're in this together. And then suddenly, they turn on you and throw you under the bus as though, like, they weren't with you up until two seconds ago. Suddenly they turn on you. They betray you. They blame you for the thing that they gladly did with you. Oh, that betrayal cuts deep. Now this story very graciously does not pause at this point to go into greater detail about what was taking place the moment those words came out of Adam's mouth. But I think we can all imagine what it was like when those words came out of Adam's mouth. And it wasn't wasn't good. It was not a pretty sight. Our story doesn't tell us about the pain or the shock on Eve's face as she hears her husband blame God for giving her to him. But we all know that there was pain and shock on her face when Adam blames God for giving her to him. And then blaming her for tempting him. So trust me on this. Take my word for it. This was not a good moment. In the history of, wor- in the history of the world, this is uh, among the worst moments. I would put... Um, murdering Jesus right up there on par with the fall of Adam and Eve as far as bad moments. What's happening in this moment, this is a picture of the very essence of a destroyed relationship, the betrayal of trust. We had an agreement and you broke that agreement. Even if it's just this agreement to sin, like, hey, we're going to eat this stuff together. You violated your word. You were with me on this, and then you turned against me, and now I can't trust you. The reason they violated their word was due to sin. There never has been a marriage destroyed that wasn't destroyed due to sin. As I mentioned before the service started, When marriages have problems or when they are destroyed, it is not because of incompatibility or we didn't have enough money or whatever. It's it's because of sin. All those other things are symptoms of the root cause, and the root cause is sin. It's sin that breaks a marriage covenant. That legal contract that we call a certificate of divorce just recognizes what one or both members of that covenant have already decided and have already communicated to each other by their actions toward one another. Actions which are sin, unrepentant sin. 
That's what destroys a marriage, is unrepentant sin. Sin that is repented of actually strengthens the bond. The next thing to see. Actually, I already addressed that. That is man's relationship with God destroyed by sin. So, point, big point number two, relationships destroyed by sin. Man's relationship with God, and secondly, Adam and Eve's relationship with one another. They go from being the greatest of all companions, perfectly made for one another, to blaming, accusing, accusing God. It's horrible. It's horrifying to consider. Let's consider number three. Point number three, the great promise. Point three, the great promise. Verse 15. Let me read verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'll reread that because it might have gone by too quick. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium or Euangelion. This is the first gospel. The fact of the fall of man has brought about the worst of all outcomes, that is death. These people created to live forever in perfect harmony with God and one another have now spiritually died. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They have died and now they need some hope. They need some good news. They need a promise. Their bodies have begun to physically die, but they've already spiritually died. Now, in God's curse given to the serpent, there is a glimmer of hope. And that glimmer of hope will grow from a dimly lit candle into the blazing glory of the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see lights throughout the Old Testament, but then you see Jesus burst onto the scene and say, I am the light of the world. This glory of the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the center of his very life and mission was displayed for the whole world to see as he hung on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. For those math junkies at home, that was 1,990 years ago and eight months because today is December 3rd. Further, 727,076 days have passed since Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to the cross by the Romans and counted guilty of your sins and mine by God the Father. You might be wondering why I'm getting into the specific dates here. You can ask Andreas Kostenberger, who's considered the world's third premier conservative theologian behind Carson and Schreiner. It goes Carson, Schreiner, Kostenberger in conservative evangelical uh, scholarship, you can ask him why he believes it is Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. But I'm bringing that up to point to the same point that I made in Genesis, and that is I believe this truly happened. 
This really happened as a fact of history on a day that you could scroll back on your Google Calendar a whole far way back, and you could look at that Google Calendar and then put there 3 p.m. Jesus died for you and for me. Counted guilty of our sins by God the Father. Now, I did not scroll back that far on Google, Google Calendar. I just used a website called howlongagogo.com where you put in two dates. And according to that, that's 1,990 years and eight months ago because today is December 3rd and that was April 3rd, so it's right at eight months. But that website doesn't seem to work with dates that are B.C. It only works with dates A.D. I don't really see it function there to click, like to switch it over from, the, from, from AD to BC. So I had to do a little bit of math for this next part. Keyword little. So if you know that I'm not exactly a math genius, you don't have to be that afraid because we're not super deep in this. But we're going to press this issue further. There were approximately 4,037 years, 5 months, and 12 days from the date that Archbishop James Usher calculated to be the date of creation. Just so you know, like the idea of a young earth creation, that's not new. The Jews believed it. They believed in a 7,000-year situation, 6,000, and then a 1,000-year millennium. And so, and they came up with this, like, a long time ago. So they have 4,000 years BC, and then 2,000 years AD, and then a 1,000-year millennium, and then the end of the whole program, and that's 7,000. So James Usher, the Archbishop of, I think, Ireland in the 1500s, comes up with this date, and I'm not sure exactly how he did that. You can look at his book if you want to borrow it. I can loan it to you. According to him, the date of creation was Sunday, naturally, October 23rd, 4004 BC. Sad to say I did not have time to read his book last night to learn how he concluded this date, 4004 BC, or more precisely, Sunday, October 23rd, 4004 BC. But that's 4,037 years, five months and 12 days from creation to the day that Jesus hung on the cross. That was the day that the glory of the Son of God was put on display for the entire world to see. And when I say glory, I don't mean his exalted status. I mean glory in the sense of the weightiness of the Son of God. When you look at him hanging on that cross and you, you begin to recognize that this is, this is the depths of your sin. The glory of the Son of God was put on display for the entire world to see. And now I remember why I put all this stuff here in the first place. Because we're talking about creation. We're in Genesis 3. So when was that? Well, that was 4004 BC. Just bearing with me on these uh, general, very precise numbers. This was a long time ago when this whole thing began and when this promise was made. This promise made to Eve. And so 4,037 years, 5 months, and 12 days passed from when that promise is made to when that promise is answered in its great fulfillment that someday the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
Oh, what hope this promise contained. That the seed of the woman, the descendant of this woman, would crush the head of the serpent. This promise contained great hope. Let me ask you, have you embraced this hope? This confidence, this confident expectation, this belief that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent through his cross and that he will one day be completely destroyed. Satan, that is. Have you begun, have you even begun to grapple with the implications of what this means? That Satan, the great enemy, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, the lion who prowls around, look, prowls around looking for someone to devour, that great enemy, also known as Apollyon, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, etc., he will be destroyed at some point. And he will never harass anymore. He will never accuse anymore. He will never lie again. Have you begun to grasp that? He's still doing all those things, even though his defeat was assured on the cross. This is where many preachers will insert an illustration about um, World War II. How there's the date of the surrender, the date that the war, the war officially ended, but then there's the actual date when the whole the fighting completely stopped once the word finally reached the outskirts of the, the battles. You know that the day that Japan surrendered was not the day that all the fighting stopped. There were still lots of skirmishes happening on lots of islands that hadn't gotten the word yet. They didn't get the memo yet. And so it's kind of like that. Where Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross in his death and then his resurrection. But this battle continues until the end of the story. But we know that Jesus wins in the end because he won there on the cross. And his resurrection. Let's keep moving. Point four. Curses placed on behalf of covenant breakers. Curses placed on behalf of covenant breakers. These curses are placed on the covenant breakers, but they're also placed on other people who weren't the covenant breakers because of the covenant breakers. The world as we know it today is not the way it was originally created. We were reminded of this a few weeks ago when we read through Romans 8. We're not going to do that right now because of time, but you can do that on your own time. What we see clearly in the world around us is that the world is broken. Life is hard. There are many difficulties. This is a severe world that we're in. You get hit by a bus, it's not pretty. The world is not a friendly place in so many ways. There are famines and plagues and natural disasters. These things all tell us that the earth is groaning. The earth is groaning not for a reduction in our carbon footprint to possibly change earth temperature back by 2 degrees Fahrenheit that it is estimated to have raised in the last 150 years according to climate.gov. But the world is groaning for redemption through Jesus Christ even though the world itself did not rebel against God. It was Adam and Eve. There are these curses that are placed on the world because of the covenant breakers. So the entire world came under the curse, even though it is Adam who singularly is charged as the representative head of humanity. If you have a problem with that or you think that it is um, 
um, anti-woman or something, please read Romans 5. Take it up with God. We see these curses described in verse 16, 17 through 19, and then also back in verse 17. These curses placed uh, first on Eve, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Some translations say your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, the first, first one listed here is the curse given to Eve. Secondly, the curse given to Adam. Verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Speaking to Adam, now he's bringing in the curse of the ground, the world falling under this curse. Verse 17b, cursed is the ground for your sake. The world itself is broken, like the dirt, the trees, the animals, we saw some weird stuff on the train platform the other day when we were heading, uh, I think heading to small group at Omar's. There, were, there was this guy who had this display. He called it Noah and the Ark or something. And he had uh, two rabbits and a hamster. And those three were like all kind of huddled up together. And then next to them was a cat. These are all real, alive. There's a cat there curled up. And like normal cats kill rabbits okay um then there's a dog walking around on the ground and then on the other side there are probably eight birds maybe four or five doves or pigeons and then some like parakeet looking birds and they're all just like sitting there hanging out the dog's the only one who has a leash but his leash isn't hooked up to anything he's just sort of wandering around dragging his leash and we're just, everybody's stopping to take pictures of it. What is, this is not natural to have a, a cat sitting there. There's a dog here not chasing the cat. The cat's not chasing the rabbits or the hamster or the birds. And the birds aren't running from the cat. This is a weird situation. So Emma punches it in on Google and turns out there's all these articles about these allegedly drugged animals that are uh, here set up as this display. But one of the birds tried to get away, and he um, hopped down and started like kind of fluttering. But what we saw was a, a very unhealthy bird. Like he's missing a whole bunch of feathers in his midsection, and his wings were half the length of what they were originally. Now, these are not the only animals that are suffering, but there are animals everywhere. Go on Instagram and type in nature is metal, and you will see lions eating other animals. You will see Deer walking around missing like half their body because the bears were eating. Like all kinds of things. The world is suffering. The world itself is also under the curse. God cursed even the ground. Verse 17. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of you, out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. The entire universe came under the curse even though the entire universe didn't sin with Adam. It was Adam alone who sinned, not the animals. So there are curses placed 
on behalf of covenant breakers. The overall message of the curse of sin is the beginning of what Christmas is all about. For in Christmas, we celebrate the curse breaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate, humble and lowly, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, born among cattle, laid in a manger. This Jesus is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and would reverse the curse of sin for all of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to consider these passages of Scripture. As we reflect on the fall and the curse, man's destroyed relationship with you and with each other, and the curses that are given because of that sin, and the hope that we have in Jesus, the confidence, the redemption, the reconciliation that we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, you would save people who do not yet know Jesus. That they would come to believe that the lights would turn on in their mind. That they would understand and believe and repent and trust that Jesus is who he said he is. That he is the Savior of the world. I thank you for this time to consider these words from Genesis. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.